0: I recall a colleague of mine who wanted to lose some weight and went on a vegetarian diet. He was able to lose weight getting down to a BMI about 22, and he could not talk enough about how this diet helped him lose weight, improve glucose, improve triglycerides, and his blood pressure. He was adamant that this was the best diet plan, and he wanted all his patients to go on this diet. Now, while a plant-based diet can have many health benefits, it's not for everyone. The scenario reminds me that as healthcare providers, we have a natural bias to recommend what has worked for us, but research on responders to dietary interventions consistently identify variability in obesity treatment response. There's no single dietary intervention that, prevent, that benefits everyone the same. Hi, I'm Dr. Nick Pennings, Chair of Family Medicine for the Campbell University School of Osteopathic Medicine and Executive Director of Clinical Education at the OMA. My guest on the podcast today is Andreas Acosta, MD, PhD, Assistant Professor in the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Dr. Acosta presented his exciting research at the OMA Fall 2022 Obesity Summit in Anaheim, California in a presentation titled, phenotype guided lifestyle intervention for obesity management. Welcome back, Andreas.
1: Uh, Thank you so much, Nick. I'm delighted to be back to chat with you about our work on phenotype uh, therapies for obesity, particularly with uh, this new data about lifestyle that we presented at the OMA uh, meeting.
0: Yes, I'm looking forward to getting into that. So, but to start, experienced clinicians have long sought to tailor medical therapies, to try to meet individual medical needs and obesity medicine specialists are no different. Your research focused on developing an evidence-based model for individualizing obesity care. Can you explain what you mean by phenotype guided lifestyle interventions?
1: Absolutely, Nick. Uh, So we, um, first let's start by saying what is the phenotype. Phenotype is basically the interaction between our genetics with our environment. As I like to explain, our phenotype can come with uh, the genetics of a mom and dad that can be very healthy individuals and with a normal weight. But then, if our lifestyle is not appropriate, we're taking medications that make us gain weight, or we make poor lifestyle decisions that we don't exercise or we don't eat healthy. Despite of having the perfect genetics, we can have an obesity phenotype. On the contrary, we can have genetics from mom and dad that are bringing us to have a predisposition for obesity. But if we try to do everything healthy, we eat very healthy, we exercise, we don't take any medications or anything that might affect our microbiota, for example, we can have a very normal healthy phenotype. So patients with obesity have a unique phenotype. And we have actually in the past described four types of key phenotypes or the most important phenotypes that explain about 85% of patients with obesity. So our work for phenotypes have been mainly focusing with using pharmacotherapy and devices. But talking with experts like you, one of the initial questions that we were getting when, when we were showing our work with phenotypes was, what about the diet and lifestyle intervention that each phenotype should be doing? So for that reason, we went back to the drawing board. We designed a unique phenotype lifestyle intervention that, uh, sorry, a unique lifestyle intervention that will be unique for each of the phenotypes, and we went ahead and tested this in a, a non-randomized controlled trial. We had an initial group who received a Mediterranean diet, controlled diet with lifestyle intervention, visit us with a wellness coach and an exercise physiologist in a 12-week sessions, and then we have a group that went through our phenotype lifestyle approach, in which is a very unique approach with diets, exercise, and lifestyle recommendations for each of these individuals and then we show that in this initial study as a proof of concept that our unique lifestyle intervention that is to pair or tailored to our phenotypes improve the outcomes within uh with compared to patients who receive a standard of care or a low calorie mediterranean diet
0: so maybe just explain a little bit what those four different phenotypes are that you were working with
1: Perfect. So to refresh uh, the memory of your listeners, uh, we have four obesity phenotypes. I think we explained them in a previous podcast, and likely you can go to that uh, podcast to dive a little bit more if you want in the phenotypes. So I'm going to be brief for the purpose of today's conversation. So basically for the initial phenotype, which we call the hungry brain phenotype, you know, pathophysiologically, these individuals don't feel full and they consume high quantities of calories in one sitting we decided uh, to provide them with a lifestyle intervention that was mainly focusing on a low calorie diet uh, with a volumetric diet, high fiber, and with a little bit of a time-restricted feeding, one to two meals per day. The idea of this concept is that the individuals eat most of their calories within one or two servings, one or two sittings per day, and then enhance their sensation of fullness. For these individuals, we recommended an exercise plan of 10,000 steps for physical activity daily, no need for really exercise, and a standard behavioral therapy where they meet with a coach on a regular basis, on a weekly basis for 12 weeks. For hungry gut... Uh, phenotype in which patients... So just, I uh, mean, uh-huh. just
0: uh, interrupt yeah. a little bit about the hungry brain. You mentioned a volumetric diet. Maybe yeah. just explain a little bit what that is and how that, why that particular intervention was picked for this patient
1: okay. type. So what we're trying to do in this case is we're trying to enhance the sensation of fullness. So in order to enhance the sensation of fullness, we need to distend the stomach as much as we can in order for the signal of the stomach Going to the brain to tell us, let's stop eating. So high fiber helps with this, but also volumetric. What do we mean by volumetric? Things that are actually are going to create volume. And what is that one of those volume? People can think about a big salad with a lot of lettuce or, or other legumes that will create that volume in your stomach, a big plate with low-calorie food that actually will give you that sensation of fullness. The best example is, for example, uh, a lettuce salad that can come with, with uh, a, a protein and fiber.
0: Is, is protein content a factor in that as well, since protein's thought to enhance satiety?
1: Uh, it is very important, I agree, but we did not adjust it for protein in the hungry brain diet. We wanted more to give that gastric distension, that volume in your in the stomach to really enhance that sensation of fullness. And that's where we separate the concept of satiation, or that fullness within a meal, versus satiety, for how long we stay feeling full. And that's why these two concepts of hungry brain and hungry gut differ.
0: Okay, so that is trying to trigger a greater sense of satiation with your Correct.
1: Feeling full with each meal. Feeling full in that meal and stop. Now in hungry gut, which is very important what you say about protein, we here we wanted to make sure that once you feel full, you stay feeling full. So in order to do that, we designed to give you a high protein, low calorie diet. And we want you to have a pre-protein, a pre-meal protein supplementation. So one hour before your main meal to have a protein snack. And exactly because what you were just said, Nick, in order to enhance that sensation of satiety, in order to have a higher response of hormones such as GLP-1 and peptide YY, for us to feel full and continue to feel full for longer periods of time. So in these folks with Hungry gut, we decide to give them three to five meals a day. So three main meals with two snacks in, late morning and late afternoon. A standard physical activity recommendations and external uh, behavioral recommendations. So one was time-restricted feeding volumetric. The other one is high protein protein snacks. The third group, the emotional eating or the, emotion, the emotional hunger. These folks are eating for their emotions. So what we wanted to do is a little bit similar that we do with, for, with people, for example, who wanna quit smoking. We said, you know what? No snacks. If you're trying to cope with life with the snacks, we wanna say, know, snacks. You eat three meals a day, no snacking. Because when we're behaving and we're actually in a good diet, you know, our snack might be a healthy veggie or a healthy fruit, but when we're not snacking, when we're not in a healthy behavior and we are craving for food, we might our snacks might not be the most healthy things. So we told these folks low-calorie diet, no three meals a day, no snacks, a standard lifestyle intervention, a standard exercise, my apologies, standard life exercise, and then a very intense behavioral program. Cognitive behavioral therapy for 12 weeks on a weekly session with one session a week with a behavioral therapist talking predominantly about emotional eating, how I'm looking for life, for food to cope with my life and my life issues. We wanted to focus on the whole group, it was a group setting, was focusing on that behavioral intervention.
0: How did you find the patients that were emotional eaters responding to that restriction of not being able to eat or not to snack in between meals? What was their reaction to that?
1: it wasn't easy for them. At the beginning, they found that quite challenging. But while it's difficult for them not to look for food for coping, one of the main things that the wellness coaches were trying to implement and discuss with the patients is trying to find new healthy things to cope with life. You know, we just say all the time, if you're having a stressful day, you know, don't walk to the vending machine, just go for a walk, right? So those kind of a small recommendations were key in order to try to help patients really break that cycle. Now, in reality, um, even though that's how we designed the study, not every patient could, uh, could um, adhere to the recommendation of three meals per day, no snacks. So we have an alternative plan that's saying if you need a snack, always has to be a healthy snack. But the majority of the patients were able to stick to the three meals a day, no snacks.
0: And also maybe to ask themselves, why am I snacking now? Why do I want to eat now, right? Looking yeah. at the reason, am I hungry or is it, am I feeding my emotions rather than my stomach?
1: Correct. And that's the an extremely important thing that, that you mentioned. We want them to be mindful on that desire to eat, on why I'm walking to that vending machine. Why do I feel I need to stop by uh, the drive through of something to grab some food on my way home and things like that. So be very mindful about your desires to eat outside of your three meals per day. Okay. And the last group, the um, abnormal metabolism or the slow burn phenotype, they have an abnormal resting energy expenditure. And one of the key things that we reported previously is that these individuals have very low muscle mass. So they've a high high percentage of fat mass, low muscle mass, and their metabolism is abnormal. So in these folks, we told them, we just want a low calorie diet but because we're going to highly recommend exercise for them, we want a prost workout uh, protein supplementation. So usual after working out, let's have a, a protein snack. It could have been a liquid form like a shake or a protein bar, three meals a day, plus this protein snack when they work out. The exercise recommendation was high interval, in, high intense interval training, hit, plus resistance training at least three times per week, and standard lifestyle intervention the standard wellness coaches so these folks were actually told you need to go to the gym the other three groups were basically just told you need to do 10,000 steps a day try to reach that goal and that was what we did for this fourth group and that was the unique four groups and how they we recommended their uh, phenotype tailored intervention
0: how did you identify the slow metabolizers
1: well, we measure resting energy expenditure by indirect calorimetry. And we also measure their body composition to know their, uh, uh, their muscle mass and their fat mass.
0: And in the course of their therapy, did you look at body composition after or after the, at the end of the course of therapy?
1: Yes, absolutely. We did the, uh, at the beginning before we, the intervention was started. And at the end, that's 12 weeks. So what it was fascinating for the groups with the abnormal metabolism is not only they lost 8% of their total body weight loss within these 12 weeks, but they have a 20% increase in the fat mass in percentage compared to patients who received the standard diet uh, lifestyle intervention who actually did not lose any weight and did not change their uh, fat mass or or fat-free mass.
0: Fat-free mass, so they had a 20% increase in fat-free mass.
1: Correct. Okay.
0: All right, cool. So then you know you compared these the the intervention and and by sorting them by these four phenotypes to a control group that was just given a standard therapy. And so how did the outcomes compare between your control group and your phenotypic groups?
1: Yeah. Before I tell you about that, just to make an important point, the control group had everything. Everyone got everything. So, they were more, a lot more intense than the phenotype tailor. Everyone got a diet. Everyone met with the wellness coaches. Everyone met with the physical therapies, and everyone got absolutely everything, the standard. So, here are the results the standard group, uh, the standard lifestyle intervention group or control group, lost 3.5% of total body weight loss at 12 weeks. The phenotype tailor group lost 7.9% of total body weight loss at 12 weeks. So we almost double, more than double, the amount of weight loss in these 12 weeks in patients who receive the phenotype tailored approach.
0: That's great, that's great. So when you're looking at these phenotypes, uh, you also mentioned in your lecture that uh, there's overlap in these groups. Mm that Some people kind of fall into into two categories or more. How do you decide what approach to take when there's overlap in the phenotypes with no clear dominance?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, Nick. Uh, So what we did is we, um, acknowledging that in our previous work and in the current work, we have seen that about 27% of patients will have more than one phenotype. We decided to look at what was the most predominant phenotype. So how do we define predominant? Those folks who are at the extreme, at the 90 percentile extreme for that phenotype. That was defined the predominant. The next cutoff was the 75th percentile for predominance. And the next cutoff was 66 percentile of predominant. So that's how we define the predominant. Now we do have multiple patients who had more than one phenotype, despite of this kind of predominance tier as we define it on the protocol. And those patients receive more than one intervention. They might have, for example, a hungry brain diet with a slow burn uh, uh, phenotype for exercise, for example.
0: Okay. So, you might do uh, multiple interventions in one, one mm-hmm. individual. Okay. Right. Well, that's Correct. interesting. Correct. Um, I also understand your research. You look at some genetic uh, analysis as well. And you mentioned, you know, the relationship between genes and, and environment. Um, so, what uh, what are the prospects for including some genotypic analysis as part of the phenotypic profile?
1: I think that's our next frontier. We're working on that. Um, we're getting now to, patient, to the number of patients we needed to actually start doing some interesting genetic studies now that we have close to 1,000 patients who have been phenotyped. That is currently a work in progress. Hopefully, we'll be able to bring some data to the obesity medicine association uh, meetings next year But to give you a little bit of a preview, we are already working on a polygenic risk score to predict each of these obesity phenotypes in which um, we will be able to identify the patient's obesity phenotypes just as a single mucosal swap or with a saliva sample in order to collect DNA and measure the phenotypes with a genetic test. So hopefully that will make it easier for everyone in their practice to you know, test for phenotypes and help their patients guide into, or get them in a phenotype tailored intervention.
0: And so would you envision that being still combined with other types of analysis, like indirect calorimetry or body composition, or um, maybe a history of eating patterns and satiety patterns?
1: You know, Nick, that's where we, like, we providers, uh, we need to decide what's the best art of medicine, as, as we already spending significant amount of time gathering this information from our patients, as we do for any other diseases. I think diagnostic tests are only held there to help us guide the patient and make us the right decisions. So the, the, the biomarker that we're going to launch, and now let me just mention this is a full conflict of interest. You know, this license. This technology was licensed from my laboratory, from the Mayo Clinic. Uh, so I'm the scientific co-founder of Phenomic Sciences. Um, what Phenomic Science is trying to do is launch an initial test for hungry gut and hungry brain phenotype. For emotional hunger, we can do it with a questionnaire, as I have mentioned before. And for slow burn, we do it right now with indirect calorimetry. My hope is eventually we can have one simple test that can identify all phenotypes, maybe four or more phenotypes. But right now with our DNA test, we think we will be able to identify two of the four and we may still need indirect calorimetry For body composition and the multiple different ways of measuring body composition, because I know as providers, we have different tools in our clinics, depending what we have. We have DEXA scan, but I know different providers have different tools. I think it's a tool that we need to use it not only to identify our patients at baseline, but also to follow up on our patients because we don't want them to be losing muscle mass. So even when patients are losing significant amount of weight, I think we need to do this in a serial fashion, maybe every six months. And So it might be appropriate to continue to have these tools in our offices until we can have an alternative measurement for fat mass and fat-free mass that we can do it in a a more simple way than with the current tools that we have available.
0: Well, I think it's very exciting that you showed you know such significant improvements in dietary interventions by phenotyping your patients and then that on top of the other data that you've shown with respect to other interventions with medical therapies, medications uh, based on phenotypic patterns. Um, And so this is all kind of moving in a very exciting area. So Mm -hmm. kind of where do you see the the future of uh, phenotypic profile uh, in obesity treatment for clinicians that are uh, taking care of patients with obesity?
1: Nick, um, I think we're, we're scratching the surface on what it entails to stratification of patients with obesity. I think we are understanding a lot with phenotypes. There's a lot more work to do. But in the meantime, I hope that uh, all the providers who are in the trenches managing obesity can start thinking about phenotypes and start using phenotypes when these tests become available or if they already have access to testing, for example, a gastric emptying machine in their practice start using and thinking that they're objective measurements to help guide their patients' therapy. We do this for everything else. We do this for any other diseases that we have. We should also do it for the disease of obesity, and we should rely on these more objective measurements to help us guide our management. I think it will be quite interesting if in the future, we can say, well, for this expensive medication, I think you should cover it to my patient because they have this surrogate, biomarker that help us, will tell us who will be doing well, for example. At the same way, we'll say maybe we should not use it in this patient because not only there's a risk for side effects, but also the patient might not respond. We need to keep pushing the field forward. And us in the trenches, we need to keep thinking about those things because we are facing our own barriers, barriers of access, barriers of reimbursement, and we need to find a solution. And the solution cannot be, let's cover it for all but the solution should be, let's cover for the right patient, but pay 100% for it, like we do for everything else in medicine. So hopefully we can keep pushing the boundaries and we can keep helping our patients lose more weight and uh, have no side effects and no weight regain.
0: And I think it also emphasized the pathophysiologic basis of obesity, that this is not just a condition of willful overconsumption and underactivity, but there really is our our pathophysiologic processes that are underlying obesity that we need to treat. And now we can uh, tailor those treatments according to more specific pathophysiologic dysfunction in the individual.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. That's, I think, to me, what I enjoy the most when my patients come back to see me is we talk about their pathophysiological abnormality, as you very nicely said, and weight becomes secondary because once you improve the underlying pathophysiology, let's call it the hungry brain, the weight will start coming off. It's like when you in- improve the ejection fraction in someone with heart failure, the edema resolves. Exactly. Uh, to me, it's the best example to put it like that.
0: So one last last question. What is your favorite piece of advice that you like to give patients when treating obesity?
1: Um, I like to tell them uh, that they're not alone and they should not be walking alone on this. They need to rely on us, providers, experts in obesity, to walk with them, celebrate the good days, celebrate the bad days. Because we are not like another stop stop by shop and then if I do well I'm going to continue but if I don't I go to the next thing they need to stick with us and the patients need to know that we're here for the good days and the bad days because otherwise they will say like oh I'm going to try diet A program B gym C provider A provider B no we are the providers we manage that we need to be like a cancer center we have all the options for our patients we're here to help them get them to a healthy weight and Patients need to understand that.
0: And that's a discussion I have with my patients in the very beginning of, of my encounters, because I tell them that my most important role is, is when you're struggling, not when you're doing well, but when you're having difficulty. That's when you need me the most. That's where my role is most beneficial. Uh, and, and so that they can feel comfortable coming back. Very often they're ashamed, they're embarrassed, they don't want to show up because they've not lost weight or they've gained weight. And that's, a, that's what I tell them, that that's when they need us the most.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely, that's, I think that's what we're here for. So, exactly. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, thank you, Andreas. Uh, you can find Dr. Acosta's conference lecture, Phenotypic Guided Lifestyle Intervention for Obesity Management in the OMA Academy. Where else can our listeners learn more about your work?
1: Well, we're constantly publishing about work. Uh, I think we have very nice, interesting reviews that have come later. And we also publish in Obesity Pillars, our work. So hopefully there's many resources for everyone to read and um, through podcasts like this as well. So I'm delighted that you have invited me again, Nick. Thank you.
0: You're welcome. And I would encourage you all to read the papers that Dr. Acosta has uh, published. They're excellent uh, information. And and I think uh, really looking at the future of obesity treatment.
1: Thank you, Nick. Thank,
0: Thank you for being with us today. If you like this podcast, please share it with a friend and help the OMA as we strive to advance Clinician Understanding of the Disease of Obesity. Thank you.